Psycho fans, welcome to this very special bonus episode of Not Your Average Goat. I want to start by first thanking all of you for everything you did to help us get to where we are today. All the amazing milestones we reached with season one in 2022 were more than I could have imagined. If you haven't seen some of those incredible numbers, head over to our Facebook or Instagram page and take a look. We have some incredible things to celebrate, including downloads, newsletter subscribers, even a cool new recognition that we got on Facebook as a rising creator. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash not your average goat podcast. And you can find us on Instagram at not average goat. So I am very excited for this episode. We did so much in season one. I had such a blast creating it and I learned so much about the podcast world, about myself, but more importantly, the diversity that is humanity. And so this episode today, we are going to celebrate 10 of my favorite moments from season one. Now, these are not all of my favorite moments, but I had to pick a few. Otherwise, we'd be here for hours. And so these are the moments that really stuck out to me as I was creating season one. And I love for you to share with me your favorite moment, but in no particular order, let's get started. Number one. So in episode one, I had the pleasure of chatting with Sonia, who is a proud polyfem and unashamed do-gooder. In this episode, I really learned that it can be really challenging to try to self-describe as a queer person and really understand what your own queerness means to you. And Sonia shares how important language is to being able to self-describe and how different cultural and political assumptions can complicate things even more. Let's hear straight from her. I didn't have a lot of sexual experience in high school. Um, again, partly because I was shy and partly because I think I just I didn't really have all the language and the self-awareness to sort of understand what it was that I was looking for. Um, and so kind of college and beyond was where I started to experiment with queerness, but also different relationship constructs. And so that's sort of where it started off as sort of more open relationship swinging, but morphed into poly um, and started to grapple with a lot of the assumptions in those communities around, oh, well, women are expected to be bisexual because it's, you know, it's fun to watch two girls kiss. <laughs> That's part yeah. of our sort of, you know, cultural zeitgeist in general. And, and, but also that, you know, that, that very performative sort of male gaze oriented stuff was just kind of yucky to me, but it was like, but, but I do like kissing girls, but I don't want to just do it for the boys. <laughs> I want to do it for myself. <laughs> so what is that, you know, what, what label do I, then I put on myself? And I resisted labels for a long time because that sort of by curious, it just seems like too cutesy. And I'm like, no, I'm not curious. I, I, I know this is what I want, but I also don't want to put myself in that performative space. 
And I actually used the term omnisexual for a long time, even before um, adopting the bisexual and pansexual label, just because it's like, well, I kind of want to try a bunch of different things, but I'm not really sure what it is. Where do I fit into this? And I don't, I'm not gay specifically, I'm not lesbian, right? Because that's a very narrow definition, but I'm not sure what the other options are. So um, I didn't really come out as queer for a long time because I was trying to figure out what my queerness meant to me. Um, and, and particularly in the context of having a, um, a long-term partner, my or sometimes refer to him as my primary partner or nesting partner um, is a dude. <laughs> and so, you know, people sort of see the two of us together and make assumptions that we're a heteronormative couple um, and fighting against that also um, is part of the fighting against bi erasure. So sort of that becomes like a political effort of like, yes, but you know, the, just because I show up this way doesn't mean that I, you're, you, you don't make those assumptions about me. I'm actually, you know, here's how I identify. So it was a very complicated sort of process of coming out. And I don't think I ever really, I didn't like start to put words around it and feel comfortable calling myself queer until probably like in my thirties. Number two. In episode two, you all have the pleasure of meeting my very dear friend, Isa, someone who has an incredible spirit and even more incredible stories. And in one of the stories that Isa shares with us, she illustrates the beautiful impact that we as humans can have on people around us. And more so, even when we don't realize it, and the story that you are about to hear is a great reminder of how important it is to always show up even during the most simplest of times. It was one morning and I was telling you how I feel things, I sense things. So one morning I wake up, it's a Wednesday morning and I get this strong urge to go to this bar and it was like a it was like a signal that was pulling my body to go there. And I'm like thinking, hey, God, why are you, why are you telling me to go to this bar? <laughs> like, wouldn't you <laughs> want me to like go to a shelter or a church or a hospital? Like what, what, what's up with this bar that you want me to go to? And so I thought, you know, this really doesn't make sense. Cause usually after work, I have my gym bag, I go to the gym. So I was like, okay, I'll just carry my gym bag just in case. Uh, you know, just in case the bar's full or, you know, I, you know, I get a, a you know, the, this urge leaves me or something. Sure enough, there's one seat. It is between two guys who are talking, look like they're talking about work. And then this couple on the other side. So I have to kind of like squeeze in and uh, I ended up talking to the couple, the, the, the two guys on the other side didn't stay for very long. And I'm, I'm sitting there, this couple's on the other side of me. And, uh, they just think that I have the most intriguing story. I talk about growing up, you know, with, uh, parents who were chemists and basketball players, mom being from Venezuela, uh, playing professional basketball, having lived in Venezuela alone at 15, uh, and learning the, learning the, 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 the language and my culture, uh, and, and then, uh, going off to college at 17, you know, the middle the middle of the nation to Missouri on a diving scholarship and, uh, and graduating and moving to New York city to, to work as a dancer. And uh, you know, all these, all these experiences and they just think my life is so incredible. 
And we're sitting there talking for almost two hours. And I think, oh my God, Issa, you are being so rude. Like you have to ask <laughs> them a question. So I turn to them and I go, so how did, how did you guys meet? Oh my gosh, Tisha, she, her face lightens up. She's a beautiful uh, woman in her probably like late fifties. He is a very handsome man in his early sixties. They have such this awesome energy between them. And she starts telling the story of how they met. You know, they had met like 20 something years ago while they were on, on the base when they were both on a, on a, on a contract uh, and how she had a crush on him. And, you know, he thought she was cute, but he was dating someone else and, you know, barely gave her the, the time of day. And then uh, the contract ends and they both continue with their lives. They, they get married, they start families and she had just gotten a divorce. She's with a girlfriend of hers and they are, you know, sitting, you know, looking on Facebook and she sends, finds him, sends him a, you know, goes to friend him. He's sitting at a bar with a friend and he's about ready to get a divorce. And he sees the, the friend invitation. He thought, wow, when I get home, I'm going to accept this. I remember how pretty she was. He gets home. The, 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 the invitation, the invite is deleted. He was like, oh man. So he, he remembered her. He finds her. He requests, you know, her friendship. They ended up getting married and they're just like so in love. I just, that, that, that feeling of, you know, that positive energy that I just, I feel in situations. I feel when I'm around people. And uh, so it was just, I, I, when I left the bar, you know, we exchanged numbers uh, and I called my mom and I was just, mom, this was the most incredible experience ever. And I'm telling her the whole story. And, you know, she just kind of that mom little giggle when she's happy that I'm happy. It was just really, really sweet. So the very next day I send the two of them a group text and I said, hey, you know, you, you made my day. I just really enjoyed meeting the two of you, you know, you know, thank you. Uh, you know, for, for your time and, and, and your, you know, your hospitality. And uh, so the wife responds sweetly and says, Isa, you know, it, we really enjoyed meeting you. Um, the husband then responds and says, Isa, it was the first time since we lost our son that we decided to go out and celebrate life and meeting you, uh, you know, gave us hope. Wow. And so, that was why I was supposed to go to that bar. <laughs> Number three. So in episode three, I sit down with Keisha, an impressive civil rights attorney and legal tech entrepreneur who started an organization called Justice Connection. She and I talk about how even in 2022, Black lawyers and those who need Black legal aid are still so marginalized and that only 5% of lawyers or less than 5% to be exact are black which severely limits equity and access to legal counsel that is culturally competent and that gives folks the best opportunity to get the justice they deserve. Here's Keisha. 
can you talk to me kind of about the motivation and the drivers about how you actually conceived Justice Connection? Once you become a lawyer, and the lawyers mm-hmm. out there um, can probably relate, once you be, well, once you start law school, right, people start asking you for legal referrals, right? As a Black person, um, only 4.8% of all lawyers are Black. So when a Black person knows you're a lawyer, they're like, hey, right? do you know anybody that does that, 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 right? Because chances are, if there's only 4.8% of us, most Black people do not know lawyers. And so um, I recognized over and over, that was something consistent. People were always asking me for legal referrals. Um, and I recognized that one, as Black lawyers, that meant that we didn't have a concerted network to support our own community, leaving the most vulnerable in a system that historically and continuously oppresses and marginalizes Black people, um, that Black lawyers were leaving money on the table, therefore. Um, and if we had our own um, network, our modern day legal green book, how that would be a win-win a win for Black lawyers to grow their practices. When you grow your practice, you're going to hire more people. When you hire more people, chances are you can do the same thing that white people do. You're going to hire people that look like you, meaning that more Black lawyers have access to uh, be a part of private practice in a firm. Um, And then our community would also be able to have greater access to more lawyers, greater visibility. Um, Therefore, you're more likely to proactively engage the legal system, the more you know, and the more um, resources you have. And of course it benefits the greater society, right? Like we want people to be able to avail themselves of their rights. We want businesses and corporations as they are um, making new commitments to diversity and inclusion for them to even consider professional services, right? Like all of these different aspects um, and how black lawyers and how not having access to legal information is a detriment on the individual community and national level. Number four. In episodes four and five, I sit down with Stephen, a fierce advocate for all misfits. He and I dive headfirst into the mental health conversation with a strong emphasis on bipolar disorder. He describes that at our core, all humans are just machines wired a little differently and that the bipolar machine is designed just wanting the world to be fair and balanced and oftentimes other mental health disorders as well. And he makes a strong plea for those who might fear medicine to not do so because it's just the special gasoline that your car needs in order to function. Here's all of this in Stephen's words. We should be honoring and in awe of the misfits because they're the ones doing it in spite of, right? It's like, yes. And that's, <laughs> that's kind of it. Right. That's that moment. That's that aha that you're describing when I say, by the way, I'm bipolar. Like, what the, you know, like, what now? You know, but, you know, bipolar for me, first and foremost, it's a chemical thing. Right. 
And we have to appreciate that every human machine is built slightly different, right? From the get-go. I think we can all agree with that. And bodies have different builds, different things. They come from different genes. They're predisposed to have certain more illnesses, et cetera, et cetera, right? Tall, color of your hair, eye, all of that, all of those infinite number of configurations, if you will, right? So first and foremost, bipolar and a lot of mental health conditions is, is about chemistry, right? Your body was just built in a way that it does too much of or does not do enough of, of X, right? And the idea of medications is not to cure you. And this is one thing I want to make clear. It's, there's no cure of all of this because we're not treating a disease like some foreign substance like a COVID right? You're reorganizing or you're making an existing machine more efficient. Some of the parts are just broken. They're just rusty, right? They were, they were misshapen during manufacturing. It's not something to cure, right? So the medications don't cure you. What they do is they get you to a more level playing field so that when you have to deal with the minutia of the static quo world, you can deal with it more rationally. So you don't flip out. When I think about bipolar people and the, and the many that I've talked to, and even just standard mental health folks, the ones who struggle with the day-to-day of the world, I've asked them, like, tell me about an episode, right? Well, tell me one of those moments where you flew off the handle, you know, and all that, what was going on? Like what, you know, how did it happen? What was being discussed? You know, that kind of thing. And no matter what the thing was, because they're all different, the core common message was there was a lack of fairness going on or there was a wrong being done. And the response to that, because their chemistry is off, is really big and society terms is uncalled for. Like you can't throw chairs across the room if you're pissed off in a meeting, right? There's, there's a layer of respect you got to do, but for someone who's bipolar, like they just don't have that in them right out of the gate. Like they need to fix their machine a little bit and keep it maintained a certain way. So they don't do that. All that said, the thing we're guilty of is we feel intensely anything doesn't matter what the thing is and usually it's around imbalance unfairness and we just want it to be better it's really weird bipolars basically they're built wanting things to be better every day that's kind of how i view it and that's what i say to anyone who will hear it anyone who has my condition all that because i don't want them to live in like of fear. And I don't want them to fear things like being on meds because that stigma, right? Oh, I'm not normal. I'm on meds or I'm on meds and now I feel great. So I'm going to stop using them. Like, no, dude, like, <laughs> like, like your car needs special gas, right? Some cars need special gasoline. Number five. In episode six, I sat down with my friend Chelsea, who has the biggest heart for empowering older adults and for lifting up the voices of young women. Chelsea shares how she experienced a pretty intense uphill battle 
early on in her career amidst both ageism and deeply ingrained gender roles throughout the organization she worked for. And she makes a plea that as women continue to grow our place in the workplace, that we continue to lift each other up and make way to hear each other's voices and to encourage each other to speak loudly versus much oppression that is the reality today. Here's Chelsea. You know, it's ironic. I'm a gerontologist, a quote-unquote expert on aging, and ageism is so much of what we talk about. Again, ageism, of course, against older adults. Uh, I don't think I was ever prepared for the ageism I would feel as a young adult, though. And sometimes I feel really selfish for saying that. But I think it's important to talk about now. So I'm glad you're giving the space to do that. When I first started my career, I uh, was you know, fresh out of graduate school and excited about uh, trying to be able to make a difference and use what I'd learned. And unfortunately, I was met with a lot of, um, I guess, barriers to, to trying to apply my knowledge and, and take ownership for the work that I did, the research, the, the new ideas. I was frequently told, you know, I'm too young to, to take on uh, more work or, you know, what ideas do I have? And then my superiors would take credit and ownership for the ideas that I would bring to the table. Um, and even though I would have really great data um, showing like of the, the impact that my work had made or the, the really significant work we'd done with outreach compared to the year before, um, or our customer satisfaction or how we had grown these national efforts. I was frequently still told, oh, well, you're too young for a career advancement. You're too young for that promotion. And I remember just being so devastated that I couldn't advance or my advancement was not being based on the merit of my work, but rather my age, that I was too young. And that was just so discouraging. And I I think as women, we're often groomed to be more humble when talking about our accomplishments, especially in the workplace. Um, and that is more humble than it is maybe men are in talking about their accomplishments. And I definitely had that own, I don't know, absorbed that into my own personality. I didn't really, and still don't, I still struggle sometimes to talk about my accomplishments and the value I bring. And so my, the first part of my career was really a period of growth. I like to look back on it of, of barriers. I, um, I learned to overcome by finding my own voice and being able to articulate the value I bring and having the confidence to push back against those who said, you know, I, I couldn't be a leader or I couldn't, um, I didn't bring value or I wasn't worthy of that advancement. And uh, it was wild to me that I found, you know, my, my employment had told me, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't valued or I wasn't um, ready for uh, that type of leadership or responsibility. But in the engagements I had through my employment outside of that company, um, 
the other organizations were asking me to be like their keynote speaker, to be the expert at their conferences, um, to be the expert speaking on Capitol Hill. And that was when it really started to click to me when I had that external recognition outside of my company that I have a voice, I have value. And just because um, this one place or certain individuals may not um, help me to grow upon it doesn't mean that I can't go somewhere else to uh, have the impact I want to have. And I really hope that as um, you know, women continue to to grow our place in the workspace that we really help to lift one another up because it's so important to help each other in this journey and uh, to help us all feel confident in, in finding our voice and speaking loudly. Number six. In episode seven, I sat down with my friend, Madeline, who also happens to be the creator of the Not Your Average Go logo. She and I dive into her journey and the role that therapy has played, and she shares how therapy has been one of the best things that she's ever done, especially as it relates to helping her rid rose-colored glasses. But we also acknowledge the stigma that therapy still has today, and not just in a general societal standpoint, but also deeply ingrained in certain cultures, including Madeline's. And she shares that from her perspective, therapy isn't just a healthy choice for you and your family, but it's also a responsibility. Here's Madeline. I was a people pleaser um, to, to the heart. So I would bend over backwards for nothing in return most of the time or for just like for anything I mean it was it was um I would put my uh, like the stress on myself for others just just to make sure they were happy um and then I learned you know like oh I can't make everyone happy so <laughs> that's what I ended up learning later on in life but for relationship wise having rose-colored glasses on it's very dangerous in my opinion yeah there were a ton of times where obviously I would go through things you know, today knowing that they're wrong back then going through it just because I wanted to feel that likeness. I wanted to feel that affection. I wanted to know like, well, okay, you still like me though. Right. Like it was, it was almost like pick me ish, which is terrible. So I had to learn through that. Like, that's just a character flaw in myself that I have to like, keep reminding myself, like, you know, it's okay. Like you can say no, like you don't have to feel bad about it. Um, but it just, it took many years to learn that. And so, yeah, that, that, that's definitely what I learned in therapy. Yeah. I th thank you for sharing because I think that a lot of people can find that very helpful. I'm just really, really glad that you did seek therapy and because I know that there's a lot of stigma around therapy even today. Um, and so I'm really glad that you kind of took that step for yourself and that it was so helpful for you to help you grow. Yeah, I know there is a ton of stigma with therapy culturally too. I just, I remember even talking to my dad about therapy, just like not even going to it just in general. And he was very like, yeah, no, you can't do that because once you go to therapy, like you're labeled as like, you're labeled as crazy, basically like something is wrong with you at that point. And so I just remember, you know, thinking about therapy in that way for a long time, like, oh no, like therapy, like you're going to be, you know, labeled at that point. But it's so untrue. It's honestly one of the healthiest things you could do for yourself and for the people around you. 
And uh, I just think it's a responsible thing for people to go through. Um, I don't think people should be afraid of therapy. Um, I personally advocate for people to go to it, even if you don't even think you need it. Like it's surprising how much actually opens when you open up yourself. Um, so yeah, no, I loved it. It was a great experience. I, I always tell people therapy is probably one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Number seven. In episode eight, I had the opportunity to sit down with my dear friend, Noor, who has had an incredible journey finding her spiritual, personal, and sexual identity. In this conversation, Noor opens up about one of her biggest failures in life, or at least what she perceives to be one of her biggest failures, but describes how it not only helped her figure out what not to do in future experiences, but it actually helped her grow so much, both personally and professionally. And her story is a great reminder that we may not always understand why things happen, but we can always find value in things that happen throughout life, especially in those things we see as failures. Here's Noor. Tisha, I, I don't think I ever told you what happened with that incubation fund. Um, it was one of my biggest failures in life. Oh. Did I ever tell you about that? No, please tell. <laughs> so I had uh, I had been setting it up in partnership um, with, with with someone else, and I guess as ideas develop and as you start testing them out, you know, ideas take their own life and they go down certain paths and trajectories and I could tell that we were no longer aligned or we were continuing to sort of grow apart in how we saw this thing evolving but at the same time I was fundraising for it and and that was sort of like an all-encompassing effort it was you know I, I I don't think it was necessarily in my comfort zone to go and pitch ideas to people and ask them for money um but it you know it's something that I took on and so that was um, a pretty big effort. And so I kept telling myself that, you know what, this um, unalignment that me and sort of like the co other co-founder had was something that I would address after I had gotten some of the money together. Because if we didn't even have the money, then there's nothing to be aligned around, right? Mm -hmm. And that was such a big mistake. Um, and <laughs> um, it, it ended up that... Um, Clearly, the gap between us became too big, um, and uh, there was a very sort of like, in, in my head, sort of like a big showdown um, where my co-founder called the other investors and told them that I was no longer running this effort. Um, and, <laughs> um, oh, wow. and uh, you know, uh, that was a, a really big learning for me, both in terms of sort of just recognizing you know what it takes to start something up you know how um uh, how you might get unaligned uh, and recognizing that that alignment really should have been my first focus uh, rather than sort of put on the back burner but i think also that entire experience gave me a way to sort of see myself as someone who is comfortable with ambiguity um, 
and recognizing that when I'm put in that role of taking a project forward where no one really knows how the project should move forward or what direction it's going to go in, that I am, I'm pretty good at doing that. Uh, and so even what I do today, even though I work for, you know, a large organization, uh, I, I tend to work in pockets of that work where it's not entirely clear how that work's going to move forward. So entrepreneurial within a larger organization and always sort of on the lookout to see what are the business model, what are the enterprise models that could have impact as well as, uh, you know, be a sustainable business. So, you know, I, 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 I do think that that was one of my big failures in life, but it's taken me a while to sort of like recognize that that failure has, um, has influenced me in positive ways that I could not have at all sort of imagined back then when I was feeling really ashamed of sort of, you know, having had this big failure. Number eight. In a very emotional two-parter series that took place in episodes nine and 10, I sat down with my dear friend, Braylon, who is one of the most animated and kind-hearted people I know. In this conversation, we talk about the 12-year hell of a journey that Bray has taken since losing her mom to suicide back in 2010. And we describe how difficult it is to be on the other side of suicide as a victim with all of the stigma and judgment and lack of support that you often receive. And Bray talks about how, in addition to the stigma and shame, that there is grief and abandonment and confusion that suicide victims are feeling, which makes mourning their loved one and healing that much more difficult. Her story is a great reminder of how vital it is to have dialogues about mental health. Here's Bray. Trust me, I cry probably six times a day, give or take, because I miss my mom so much. Like, it's painful how much I miss her. But you just, you know, the biggest thing is like, we are the evidence of our loved ones. And it is my mission and it is my superpower that I think that I am able to, I want to live life as like she would and would want me to. And I also like what she did was like, it's not for nothing. Um, and I know a lot of people, when they have their thoughts on suicide, they think it's weak. They think it's all these things. And they forget that, like, there's people on the other side. There's family members. There's daughters. There's sons. There's husbands. There's wives. You know, that they really miss this person in their life. And now you're making it seem like, you know, what they did, like, was selfish or this or for that. And, like, when you really think about the toll that that can take on the people that already lost their loved one, you know, my, my therapist shared with me that people who lose loved ones to suicide, they receive, you know, 76% less support than if someone losing their loved one to a car accident, to cancer. And I understand, you know, I know there's a lot of things, but like, I, I almost want to that number to resonate and like so now you're already missing your loved one you're feeling confused you're feeling abandoned 
you're feeling guilty. And then like, you know, it's almost like you have all those, you, you forget to mourn the person because those feelings are so just consuming. So this is why now I, I'm 30 years old, but, and it has been a hell of a journey to get to this, but um, this is why it's so important to just, just talk about it. Um, and, and there, there's just really, really powerful things that can come from having like conversations like these. Number nine. So in episode 11, I sat down with Terrell, who is an Air Force veteran and someone who's dedicated to lifting up the stories of Black creators and entrepreneurs. Terrell shares that when he moved from California to the Southeast in the 90s for the Air Force, the racially charged culture shock he experienced. And even as a Black man himself who had seen racism depicted through the media, he said that his eyes were not truly open to the fear-inducing hatred that is racism until he experienced it firsthand at an Alabama gas station one day. I think Terrell's story is a humble reminder that regardless of our physical or cultural similarities or differences to other people, that it's important to be self-aware of how our own personal experiences, biases, and assumptions might impact our ability to empathize and truly relate with others. Here's Terrell's story. Being in California, especially being in where I was raised, there was black people there, but there wasn't a lot, you know, and then being in Florida where, I mean, it's diverse, but there's a bigger community than it was in the town I was in, in California. And then you have, then you got a chance. I had a chance to, to go to these um, black colleges, uh, you know, all black colleges, which was, I felt funny. I felt weird because it was like a lot of black. I mean, it was like <laughs> a lot of black people. And you just, you just not used to, for me, I just wasn't used to that. And then that's when, you know, that's when I started seeing things that happened that, uh, you know, racist people, um, discrimination. That's when it really like had my eyes open. I mean, there was times where I almost died. Like, like, like. I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I'm like a miracle child. You know, there's times when I was in the wrong, wrong, wrong place. You know, where I had to get gas and. I was almost out and I had to stop by one of these like old little house and prairie type gas stations. And well, not little house and prairie because they had horses and stuff, but it was, <laughs> a, it was the old school ones. And I walked into that. I walked in to pay and it was just like when the whole entire diner or whatever it is, when they turn around and look at you and they was all white and they look at you you knew it was time to go, you know, and it's, it's crazy because you see it on TV and you hear about it, but until you experience it, it's crazy. So I'm booking out. I pay for it on my gas 
I'm going out and I'm telling my friend, I'm like, let's go, let's go. Hurry up and pump that gas. Hurry up and pump that gas. But it was, and it was crazy because as we was pumping gas, we didn't even pump all our gas. I think we was, it was like, back in those days, it was like $15 got you, got you a full tank. And we only pumped in like maybe $8 worth because at that time, a big truck came through. You know, those like um, off-road trucks with a big, huge, huge Confederate flag came coming through and there was there was guys in the back of the bed and there was guys in the front and they start circling us like you know like just circling like yelling like you know and saying the n-word and everything and we just i just i thought i was gonna die i thought i was gonna i thought i was gonna die i mean we and then i was like man forget the damn gas man who cares we'll just go somewhere else and we got in that car and we just peeled out and we just Bam. And they was chasing us for a while. And then they because they was honking and everything. And all you hear was just the N-word, 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 N-word. And that was my first encounter of what people experience. You know, I never experienced it before until then. I can honestly say I can relate. You know, it's just it was scary. Number 10. So last but certainly not least. In episode 12, I had the pleasure of chatting with Jessica, who is a highly successful senior leader. She has started her own company dedicated to helping women of color find upward mobility in their careers. And she once graduated at the top of her university class with a 4.0. Jessica was also once an alcoholic and a high-functioning, quote-unquote, invisible alcoholic. And in this conversation, she describes the very dangerous system she put in place starting in college that led to her drinking problem, including treating alcohol as a release after a bad day, as a reward for getting good grades, and then transferring it into a I-deserve-this system because a bad thing happened to me or because I did this amazing thing and then how it transformed into her friend during her lonely days in Australia during grad school. Jessica's story is a great one because it illustrates not only that alcoholism can impact anyone in society but how quickly something like a simple reward system can spiral and turn into something so dangerous. The roots and faces of alcoholism aren't necessarily what you think, and Jessica's story is a great illustration of that. Here she is. So definitely college is when I started the binge drinking. So I would go through these phases, and like I said, my my eye was on the prize when it came to my grades and it was very, very important to me. Like the perfectionist, my perfectionist side peaked in college. Like this is when it came out to the extreme. So I would go through these periods where I would basically live in the library. Like they would literally kick me out because that is how much I was studying. So I would go through these rapid periods in the semester of I have to study, 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 get everything right. And then as soon as that was over, alcohol became the reward. So 
after a long day, or I got an A, or I did this project well, or I gave a great presentation, the reward became alcohol. And then I would go through these periods of when the semester was over, I would go out with my friends. So my friends would go through these periods where they wouldn't see me. And then when the semester's over, grades are done, I would be out partying, doing whatever I wanted to do and binge drinking. So it became a reward system. Like alcohol became my release and it also became my reward for anything good that happened. But it also wasn't just all the good. So if anything went wrong, I deserved a drink. And so that mentality, and I use that word because that is what I would say. I would say, I deserve a drink. Like, look, I made an A. I deserve a drink. Look, I did a great presentation. I deserve a drink. And it set up this reward system for me of drinking was a reward for me being good, quote unquote, or me being smart or anything good in my life. I deserve to drink for it. And so it set up this really dangerous system and it fed into the, you know, nothing's wrong with me because I'm making A's. I'm in college making A's. I'm the president of all these organizations. I specifically remember uh, one of a, a close friend of mine was introducing me to someone like we were out and she said, oh, this is the smart friend. And literally they started calling me smart. My nickname in college was Jesse. So smart Jesse. And she would say like, oh, we don't see her for months. And then, you know, she comes back out and parties with us. And so it almost became like my brand. You get the 4.0 in, in college, but after you leave college, how does this reward system kind of follow you afterward? Oh, yeah, it definitely followed me. So when I left my undergraduate, which was in Texas, I, with my 4.0, got an amazing scholarship to go to the University of Sydney. So I moved to Sydney, Australia. So this became a new level of drinking because I was alone. So moving to another country was an amazing experience, but it also was very hard. Like I was very lonely in the beginning. I didn't know. I'd never even been to Australia. didn't know anyone. Once in a lifetime situation, but alcohol became my friend. Like before when I thought, you know, alcohol was a reward. When I moved to Sydney, alcohol became my friend because I didn't have any friends. So I would study like crazy and then just go home and drink and watch movies all night. And so it became like this was a friend to me. And I think this was the first sign of it becoming a problem or people saying like, hey, maybe you're doing too much. I remember one time I, uh, in Sydney, I got invited to this really nice banquet. They were giving awards to students and I got an award and it was an open bar. And I get, literally got so intoxicated that I like fell and like really, really hurt my knee. They had to like help me get home. I couldn't even walk. And this is at an award ceremony where I got an award for my academic achievements. So that is a wrap y'all. Were there any moments in my top 10 that were also your favorite? Or did you have another moment that really stood out to you in season one? Share on social, in the comments. Would love to hear your thoughts. And until next time, everyone.